You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Humanize Me. Or welcome for the first time, if it's your first time. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And some of you are probably really surprised that I am dropping an episode of this podcast so quickly on the heels of the last episode of this podcast, since before that it has been pretty sporadic since the beginning of the year. But the truth is, from now on, they're going to come fast and furious. And there's two reasons for that. I mean, the first reason is because I'm doing these bonus episodes and I'll probably try to do one of them every week. Um, and, and some of you won't be interested in them. They are primarily aimed at people that are actually trying to create some kind of fellowship or some kind of secular humanist community in their own area. And it's going to be just, you know, kind of by the book, how-tos, stuff to think about, like good ideas. And, and I don't need anybody to come in. Like I've been talking about that with people a lot. So I, I'm, I'm just going to drop those myself and they'll be easy for me to produce. They'll be short and sweet and to the point and hopefully really practical. Um, so that's cool. But then the other thing is I'm going to also be doing these conversation ones, the regular Humanize Me podcast that are short for mass consumption. Um, like this week's episode, which is a conversation between me and a friend named Jared Saeed who runs the Center for Community. Um, and is just a brilliant sort of facilitator of great conversations. And he's figured out some stuff about how and why and when people can talk to each other, especially people that are in conflict, especially people who don't see things the same way or people that are really coming from different places. And so, I, I mean, we had this conversation. It was so fun for me. And I hope it's fun for you. I think it will be. I think you'll dig it. But, you know, beyond Jared, like I've lined up like a neuroscientist who's amazing who's coming to talk and then a, a an astrophysicist and a chef and a visual artist and a painter who's going to talk about and that stuff. And, and, and you say, talk about what? We're all going to be talking about the same stuff and that is how do we use the stuff that people are learning and experiencing in the world, the cool stuff that's happening out there to be better, to live better to do better stuff in the world, um, to become more human, which is why we call it Humanize Me. So they're going to, like, I'm I'm hoping that we can do at least one, I'm I'm really thinking we're going to be able to do, like, one real episode and one bonus episode every week. Um, But, you know, it's not just that we're going to do more. We're also adding some cool features. And I say we, I mean, like, the Humanize Me team, um, which is really just me and John at this point. Although, we got some people that want to come in and help us to do the devotions that we've the weekly devotions that we've been talking about and the other things but in the meantime since we don't have the weekly devotion thing online yet or we don't we haven't figured out the 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 the, the mechanics of that on these podcasts on the outro after the conversation the I'm I'm going to come back and I'm going to share kind of like a, a little inspirational reading from Ingersoll you know because he's my hero and I always want people to hear him. And so like, I'll give you a little Ingersoll at the end of each episode. And then this week, for, for instance, I've got a really great song to share with you that somebody shared with me and I'm going to share it with you and I think you're going to love it. So there's stuff on the other side of the podcast, um, little bonus things. 
aimed at helping people that are like, well, I, I want to do more than just listen to a podcast. I, I, I need more than that. And uh, so that stuff's coming. Um, yeah. In the meantime, if you want to know anything, if you want to give me some feedback, if you want to find out about coaching and counseling, stuff like that, anything, all things having to do with Humanize Me, uh, go to the website, bartcampolo.org, and you can you can find it all there or you can reach out to me through there. Um, and I love to hear from you, feedback, even if you just tell me that I'm irritating. Um, it, it's, it's still nice to know that you care. Speaking of irritating, intros that go too long when there's a really cool interview on the other side are irritating. So we're going to stop that right now and get on with the show. Here we go. Me and Jared Saeed. When you talk about the the price of admission being, you know, theology, and if you can disabuse yourself of the fact that you need to believe something, or you need to call yourself something, or you need to create the box or the label, you find that that community is everywhere. You just need to find an invitation to step into that with people. It truly is is something that can be spontaneous and it's co-arising, and I think we get stuck in calling it something and naming it, and that's the problem. I think because once you name it something, and someone feels they don't belong. And we see this in prisons over and over again. You know, people recognize, oh, wait a second, that looks like voodoo. That looks like some Christian thing. That looks like a Buddhist thing. I don't belong here. And that has to be something that you set aside from the outset. So it's a funny balance of... Um, you got to name it so that they know what I'm inviting you to. But if you name it, then mm -hmm. that also might drive somebody away. Yeah. So, so, so what do you call it? So you hold it lightly. What do you, what, I mean, when you're, when you're saying to people like, Hey, I want to do this thing. Yeah. What is it? What do you call the thing you want to do? I think it's coming together in a good way. And <laughs> I want to come together in a good way. <laughs> so when you say it's a shift for you, yeah, like is like you and I went to Brown university at the same time. Yeah. Are you, are you telling me like, were you thinking this way back then? Of course not. So, no, cause I was. Yeah. But you weren't. You know, um, what were you thinking back then? I, I thought I could figure it out. I thought there's a way to kind of master it, a way to understand it, a way to construct it, a way to array things and build things so that it was going to be successful. I think my whole life was based on, predicated on creating a structure that I could live in. And I think it was. Um, As an individual, like, were you, was your project. I want to structure my life so that I am successful. I think it's too early in the uh, in our conversation for me to admit to that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that we were talking about what Los Angeles is. A lot of people come out here because you want to build something for yourself. And I think I did the same. You know, for me, um, it was about being part of an entertainment industry in which you became a sort of a... Um, indispensable piece of the story. It was about, you know, creating uh, identity for yourself, over-identifying yourself as the character actor who was this or that. I don't know. And I think that um, the magic of storytelling, if I may use that word, the, the beauty of finding commonality in stories was always there. The career path that was, let's become a big star and win an Oscar and, you know, write an Oscar winning movie and get everybody to, you know, kind of pay lots of money and, you know, kind of be a CAA star and then buy a big house and all that sort of stuff was the path to 
dwindling authenticity to the point of complete sort of bankruptcy, complete corruption of any sense of telling my story. I lost my story. I, I no longer had any kind of authenticity. I was chasing after something. But that's like the classic LA story, right? Yeah, of course it You is. come out here to be authentic and tell stories, yeah. and then you lose your soul in the that's process. Right. Yeah, pretty much. And, and so how long did it distracted. take? Um... Oh boy. Uh, I think I enlisted my um, ex-wife in uh, in building something that had to kind of explode. I had a little sort of catastrophe of my own where we built up a life and built up a family and um, the whole thing needed to kind of fall apart in order for me to uh, reboot and reframe who I was. So it took about 10 years of building. And then a really catastrophic and unpleasant divorce and, you know, real kind of coming down of all the things that I had created that I thought were going to replace that authentic sense of connection and purpose and meaning. And, um, how old were you when all the pieces were sitting there on the ground and it was all, you know, like, you know, like when, when you're at, when you go like, this just didn't work out. Yeah. How old were you? Um, so this was. Uh, my my daughter was already a teenager. I, I'd gotten well, way far into my life at that point. Right. Um, I I had managed to create, um, you know, a sort of a career path. I was I had a family. I had a nice big house, and um, and it was all really I think predicated on a on a lot of um, uh, a lot of dysfunction and a lot of fear based thinking. So yeah, it all came apart. It came apart in the you know in the form of a a really unpleasant divorce, as I said, and um, and then it were you still were you still? I mean, the career that bought you that house. Yeah, you were an actor. I was an actor. I was a director. I was writing. Yeah, yeah. And I was married to somebody who was also very invested in the entertainment industry and had become very successful on the other side of the camera, and uh, was um, had really figured out how to how to be successful. Yeah, in, in the business. And so collectively, there you were. There we were, yeah. And, and then when that fell apart, um, what do you do? Yeah. So um, more than anything else, I was a dad. And I was uh, president of the governing board of my daughter's uh, elementary school. And um, we had watched the LA riots uh, really create a lot of uh, fear and a lot of uh, contraction particularly in her school community. I saw that kind of falling apart. Uh, I was part of a group that brought in something to her school that transformed the place. And it was about coming together around the stories, around our sort of collective sense of what it is to be a human being. It was this thing called council. It was something that was um, alive in uh, some of the private schools on the West side and was just beginning to make it into the public school system. And we brought it in and it completely transformed that community. I saw that happen. And so you were like just this involved parent exactly our school is not connected enough or there's not something missing here no i think it was more like you know we're factions it's us and them amongst the parents parents and staff even the kids bullying was out of control mean girls all that sort of stuff there was a lot of stuff happening and emerging on that uh campus of a little you know elementary school kids that was uh, really scary it made you want to just take your kid and, and find some place that was somehow far away and behind a gate and where did you find this idea of council, like where did you, like you say you brought in people, who'd you bring yeah. in? So, um, at the time of the LA riots, 
there was a great need to do something on these campuses. The first campus that integrated this practice of council into the school uh, fabric was Palms Middle School uh, in, on, in West LA. And we saw it work. Um, we visited and saw that stuff was happening there that was really remarkable for a place that was so incendiary. And um, we brought it down to the open charter magnet school, which was where my daughter was, uh, I think, a third grader at the time. And it was, it, it, it was extraordinary how quickly things turned around when we remembered who we were as parents who love their kids and as people just, you know, trying to make the world a better place. It and, was no and, longer. And, and, so you brought it. So we brought a practice. Uh, so for, I, yeah, what's uh, it? Okay. So the, you know, the, the first um, thing to tackle was the fact that uh, the climate amongst parents was really us and them and then parents and staff and then kids. And so we needed some way to come together to sit in a circle and to set aside those things that we hated about each other and challenge each other on and thought about each other and really um, speak about those kind of fundamental values of who we were, tell our stories about, um, you know, times that we had um, felt great pride, times that we had felt overwhelmed and challenged, things we had lost, things that we miss things that we wanted for our kids parents started to see each other as allies okay, parents wait, wait, and staff started to see I'm, each other I'm, as I'm allies. gonna take you back still yeah. like i'm thinking like what's it mm -hmm. like we started listening to each other we started getting in touch like using this what did you do so did everybody um, like write down their story and read it to each other yeah. like what happened so um the practice of counsel was codified up at the Ojai Foundation. Um, the Ojai Foundation was founded in the late 70s, and it was uh, really intended to be a laboratory for how to build community, how to create a more uh, productive and flourishing culture. And um, traditions from around the world were attracted, and teachers and, and uh, medicine men and other folks came to the Ojai Foundation. And what was codified at the time was this way to come together and share our story through the practice of counsel, which is sitting together in a circle and speaking one at a time and telling your story, speaking authentically and listening not to agree or disagree, but just to understand. And it codified and um, a book was written called The Way of Counsel. And it started to be something that seemed like it needed to be in schools in Los Angeles. So a couple of independent schools picked up this practice and started to integrate it into their curriculum. In particular, Crossroads School was the first that really decided that the voice of the children really needed to be heard. And there needed to be a space where it wasn't about uh, a download of information from somebody else, but really accessing that part of you that was your innate wisdom, your innate human You goodness. know, it's funny because my kids grew up on the East Coast mm -hmm. going to Quaker schools. Okay. And I, 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 they called it meeting for worship, but it felt like almost the same thing where mm -hmm. one kid would stand up and share and everybody would listen and then he would sit down and next one she would listen. And I mean, and, and then they, in the classrooms, they would also do circles where they would share in this kind of very, you know, we used to jokingly call it touchy feely way, but yeah. it was, you know, my kids grew up just thinking well, of course you listen to the other, mm -hmm. and then you'll get your turn and mm -hmm. all these things. When you talk about counsel, do you ever get people saying like, that sounds Quaker to me? <laughs> um, during civil rights movement and anti-war movement, Quakers were doing these listening circles, this devout listening. And um, Joan Halifax, who founded the Ojai Foundation, who was the first, the founding director, learned this way from Quakers. Okay, so, that I, so there is a connection. There's a deep connection. Yeah. 
simultaneously, it, it was arising and was alive in a, uh, hundreds of other cultures, but it was called something different. Sure. So in Rwanda, it's called Ibiramo. It's Fomble Talk in Sierra Leone. It's Ho'oponopono in Hawaii. It's called uh, Diwan and Loya Jirga in Islamic traditions and yeah. Agal Hakshaba in, in Hebrew traditions, but it's all the same. And it that, was not being done in LA when your was kid was in, in third LA, grade. <laughs> except that, you know, the indigenous folks in the area knew talking circles well. And so at the Ojai Foundation, there were Lakota teachers who came in and talked about these talking circles. And this tradition where Ben Franklin looked at, you know, Iroquois people and said, this council is pretty cool and wrote about it extensively as he kind of uh, fantasized about what the American experiment could be. So he saw this, called it council, and that's why we call it that. But it really is a tradition that has many names and many different roots. Yeah. And so during that time at the OI Foundation, all these different teachers brought their way of doing things. Some use talking pieces, some pass a pipe. Others in Rwanda, they actually pass a straw and have a huge pot of local brew. It's this banana beer that they all, you know, one elder sort of drinks from it and tells his story, then passes the straw to the next guy. So there are all kinds of ways of doing it, but essentially it's the same thing. And what was codified at the OI Foundation was a way to make it portable and make it palatable in our um, very uh, intentional and agenda-driven society. How do you step away from um, uh, your analytical mind, your seductive mind, your your judgmental and preferential mind, and actually uh, create a space where that which is alive in you can be spoken without uh, a sense of agenda or need to... Um, seduce or enlist and how do you listen to people around you without having to agree or disagree with them this was something that was really missing in our culture in our fast culture where we don't really come together for family meals and for ways of celebrating and discussing and coming together as a as a community uh, but the practice of counsel the codification and the very simple um, intentions behind counsel to listen from your heart as opposed to from your head to speak from your heart yeah to be spontaneous to be lean, to say just what needs to be said, to go to the essence. These were things that were really effective in a school setting, I found, so much so that it felt like a different place after six months. It felt like a how different often, place. How, when, 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 you, when you brought in, because like you were not an expert in no, this yourself. No, no. You, you uh, brought some people in because like you'd heard this might be a good thing. Yeah. And so when they came in and they said, we're going to sit in a circle, mm -hmm. is there a number of people that sit in the circle? So originally we did this with parents. So I don't know, there were maybe 20, 30 folks that sat in it first. Very quickly as teachers came in, uh, we used different modalities within council, like the fishbowl and the spiral council uh, that make it possible for anything from you know three or four people to 200, 300 people to sit in council together. Do you have a favorite number? <laughs> um, those who are there. Yeah. Are Man, the right so number two. I'm sorry. What can I tell you? <laughs> because you know, you find a way to embody this, and you find a way to slip into council when you're with somebody, and the intention is there, and you're gathered in a in a loving way, in a good way. You find a process that works, and right. you are uh, skilled enough because you have studied this to be able to figure out which. Uh, tool in the toolkit is appropriate. So if you've got, as I have confronted, a, a 250 seniors at a private school on the west side in conflict and 45 minutes to do a council, you know to use a spiral council, you know to set up in a certain way. If you've got, you know, a, a couple of business partners who are in great conflict and they need to find a way to get through it, you understand how to set up a council that makes sense for them. If there's a conflict going on that you need to explore in a community, there are forms that are suited for that. So there's a there's somebody that sort of has this toolkit like this leader person 
and they're not necessarily going to like do the, all the talking, but they're going to set the ground rules yeah. of the deal, right? So, is, I mean, is that what you do now? Yeah. So, um, it became clear to me that this was uh, a critical need. It was feeding a longing that was everywhere. It wasn't just in schools. It was everywhere. I went to work for the OI Foundation. I needed to learn how to do this myself. I needed to be part of what it was that was bringing this forward. At our peak, we had about 65 public schools throughout LAUSD that were practicing council. Where oh, we had gone the OI Foundation was so, helping 65 yeah. schools? So we had created something called the Center for Council Training, which was the unit at the OI Foundation that really went out, that took the practice into school settings and other settings. So I became the coordinator, then the director of that. Uh, and it became clear as we went from public schools to settings that were um, a little even uh, more controversial, uh, prisons and uh, neighborhoods where things were hot, and even into healthcare, that we needed to get away from some of the baggage that the OI Foundation had um kind of taken on along the way. I mean, the OI Foundation is a retreat center for folks that um, are really on a journey for seekers. And so um, there was a um, there was a character to that place that wasn't for everybody. <laughs> you know, like you're talking to the secular humanist chaplain at yeah. USC. So yeah, like when I think about Ojai, yeah. I, I've never been there. I don't know anything about it, yeah. but I have this kind of new age, woo-woo um, vibe to it. You know, and and that may be a caricature, but is that the kind of baggage you're talking about that people associate it with kind of like spiritual? We call it candles and sandals. There you go. And um, that's great when that when it's time for that. And it's also not okay in many other situations. We needed to find a way to understand what we were doing that wasn't surrounded by all those trappings. Because it didn't need to be. Didn't need to be. And, uh, you know, I have great admiration and respect for a lot of the teachers who found their way there and they wanted to be off the grid doing their thing. And that was great. And it was time for this to be in the public schools. It was time for this to be in the prisons and the jails. It was time for this to be in healthcare. And we couldn't do it with those trappings. So, you know, it's so funny because, mm -hmm. you know, I have a friend here who's all into mindfulness mm -hmm. and I, I have really mixed emotions about mindfulness mm -hmm. um, because on the one hand, I feel like in our society, like you got all these people that are stressed out and crazy and people go like mindfulness and like the bad news, the good news is like, this will help you. Um, mm -hmm. And it's denatured Buddhism and like, it's all that. The, the bad news is, is like, instead of questioning, like, are you too busy? Are you doing too much work? Are you too disconnected from me? But they're like, look, here's this thing that will enable you it's like a pill you can take yeah. and you can, and, and, and you can keep grinding it out. And, but the other thing is, is that it's this pill that you take individually. Like, I'm mm -hmm. going to teach you to do this thing. So that, and so you're still an atomic unit. You're mm -hmm. still alone. This council thing seems very different in the sense of like, y'all are stressed out. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not going to give each of you a, a separate individual pill to cope with the stress out. Maybe you need to change the way you relate to each other. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, like I sense that. But in the same way that like mindfulness is in a sense like dereligioned Buddhism. Oh boy. Is council sort of Dio hide, um, <laughs> D sandals and, and candles like spirituality group collect or collective something collective, collective connection. Yeah. Um, you're just, you're, I, it's funny. Like I'm just watching you. You're like, <laughs> this is painful to see me talking about it this it's way. It's not, I really appreciate what you're doing here. And I understand the, the nature of this conversation. There are, are folks who, um, who need to find the box that they can be in. And I 
face this every time we sit down in a circle. People walk in, especially, you know, I'm in a lot of prisons now and I, people walk in and take one look at a bunch of people sitting in a circle and, you know, uh, something in the center and maybe there's a candle. It's like, whoa, this is a voodoo. This is some Buddhist group, Christian group, pagan group. You know, there's a immediate label put on it. Or do they think it's an AA group? Or it could be even that. Yeah. So let's take a step back here. Um, I think that the innovation that John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Kornfield and a bunch of these folks had in understanding that alleviating suffering is um, a critical responsibility of all of us, and calling it relieving stress is another way of saying it that's more palatable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so suffering, stress, all right. And one has access to it that way. Uh, stress and suffering causes a lot of damage personally to relationships, to communities. And uh, it's important for us to be sensitive to that. And it starts at home. You need to be able to understand what is happening when you get upregulated. You need to have tools for coming back into a sense of resilience when you get triggered, when you get kind of blown out of your capacity to be present. So there are techniques around that that in traditional Buddhist study help you get back to an ethical base where you're really about being with the suffering that needs to be attended to. And so it's a good practice if it serves something that's, you know, making the world a better place and, right, right, right. and kindness forward and all that. So often there seems to be you know, a magic pill or a shortcut where let's just use it so that we can increase profits and further pillage. Yeah, the that's earth. my, yeah. that's and my. And that's crap. not a good thing. But so like, and but mindfulness to the side, like in some mindfulness sense. Mindfulness to the side. And I think people have called counsel a group mindfulness process and they're not far off in that. Really? We as, well, you know, when a bunch of people come together and they take a backward step, they take a breath, they're like, okay, so what's really going on here? So as we sit here, you know, how does it feel to sit here with a bunch of people? You know, I'm looking across the room and I'm seeing somebody who, I kind of don't like because he's wearing a uniform and has a badge or because he's a different color than me or because he talks in a way that triggers something in me. And when that happens, it's really important to understand how you're getting triggered, how you're starting to see the other as not aligned with you as opposed to an ally. Through the stories that come forward when you do counsel, you realize there's a lot more alike than there is that's different. We share a great deal. There's a common ground here because we all have fallen in love. We all have lost something. We've all been scared about something. And when you hear those stories, you realize that that guy who I thought was not like me, that guy who I thought, you know, voted for the other guy in the elections or is here to, you know, do something that I totally can't abide is actually a lot more like me than I thought. And so council has that extraordinary um, capacity to create community through the commonalities in the story. And in doing that, we sort of chill. We, we walk into a situation with all kinds of assumptions and in letting those go in a container that feels safe enough for us to tell our story and be vulnerable, we recognize something about that which we share. And what makes it safe? Like, like, is there somebody there that says, I'm in charge of this circle mm -hmm. and here's what we're going to talk about and here are the rules. And like, it's safe because I won't let anything bad happen to you. Like, what makes it safe? Well, yeah. So that's a, that is one way to look at it. I would say that that's a dangerous right, that, that, approach. You, you, can you tell I used to be an evangelical leader? I can leader? tell, but I really can tell. <laughs> it's very, very Judeo-Christian of you, and I appreciate it. And it also has a kind of a patriarchal kind of piece to it, because is it the responsibility of the guy with the loudest voice and most privileged to really set the rules? And can yes, ever keep... Because oh, okay, that's me. All right, then. So I think that there's something that Trust me. we can do <laughs> as folks who um, have found our way to... You you know, uh, become real present with ourselves and with the people around us and real intentional that can be a model 
And there are some intentions we can invite folks to hold in coming together. Um, and when we practice in a way that uh, gives us a chance to look at the collective wisdom that is there, it's way more powerful okay, than but, someone but fill telling that out you. For me. Okay, yeah. I walk into the room. Yeah. If, if, if Bart Campolo isn't there saying, okay, everybody, we're about to start now. Let, let me run you through the ground rules. If that's not going to happen, yeah. what does happen? So there are five basic elements in council. Putting people in a circle so everybody knows who's there is a critical piece because there isn't a hierarchy because you're not standing in front of the group. You don't have a you know, piece of chalk or whatever or right. smart board. You don't have any authority behind the dais or behind your privilege, but we all are actually in a circle. That is a remarkable shift. And we used to do it you know, when in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or when we had family meals or whatever. We know how to be in a circle and there's something archetypal about a circle. It's sure. different. Around the fire. Around the fire. It has something that is leveling. It has something that feels like it doesn't begin or end. It doesn't privilege anybody in particular. There's a center in council, and the center holds our commonality. So you will often see folks bring something to put in the center that's important to them. It's a picture of their family. It's something that has a particular meaning. It's a it's a you know the the, the color of somebody's dog that they grew up with that they've kept for a long time that reminds them of what it is to have a dog. There are items from our life that remind us of the stories that that have a preciousness to them. How do they know to bring something? So this is I'm giving you. The way it looks. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm bad at this. I'm giving you the uh, you know the, the what, and then we can okay. figure out the how. So, um, and I'll just say that uh, you know it's one thing to do this at the Ojai Foundation or at a retreat. There's another thing when you go into a prison, a maximum security prison, where you say there's got to be something, and you can't believe the things that people have. There's a guy in a in a prison up in uh, Soledad who came the day after the second day of our training and brought a needle and thread that he had had for 18 years in his cell because on his first day of incarceration, he had split his pants and his cellmate saw this happen. And this was not a good thing to happen on the first day of your incarceration. And his, his cellmate sort of took him over and helped him sew up his pants. And he tells the story of what happened when somebody had his back and what it meant to feel like there was going to be somebody there to, to look out for him. And this guy had since died and he'd been all kinds of, you know, there, he lost his contact with his cellmate, but he kept the needle and thread. And somehow that reminded him of something that he could depend upon, something about the human condition or human nature. And so that needle and so thread put is, that, is, in the center and of that the was, that was okay. his item to put in the center of the circle. And we have all kinds of stories of incredible things that, that come into the center of the circle. They don't, they're not religious icons. They don't have any magical supernatural right. significance. There's something that's important to you and everybody's got one of them. Yeah. It's funny. We, we, at, at, at dinner one night at USC, I had everybody, I said, we're going to do show and tell. Uh -huh. And it was, it was, you know, and it was beautiful. I mean, yeah. people brought items and then the stories that they told about the items. Exactly. So it sounds like this is a little bit show and tell. -ish. It's got that in it. Yeah. It's got that in it. So, okay. So I've got a circle. So you've got a circle, you've got a center, and then there needs to be some way to step in. There needs to be a threshold. There's liminality here. So there needs to be some what way that, to, What does that mean, liminality? Th there needs to be some way to navigate that, that before is different than after. And we're stepping into something that has intentionality different than our day-to-day fast-paced okay. life. And so in stepping in, we all agree and it's consensual. Nobody is dragged in. There's no coercion. It's not like, you know, the price of admission, as you say, doesn't mean you have to sign up or believe anything or, you know, make a pronouncement or join a church or whatever. This is just about stepping in in a good way together 
to do something for a period of time that is defined, 45 minutes or half an hour or an hour. Is there some symbolic way in which we say like this is starting now? So generally there is. And and you will see if you sit in council that there is a a call for people to add something to the center in the way of a dedication. Maybe you're thinking about your kid or your parent or someone where you want to just put out a good word for somebody out in the world, or you just want to remember, you know, the value of friendship or something like this. And so in that sort of dedication, you sort of step in and what you do in council are these four intentions. You agree to listen in a different kind of way, to listen not to, again, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing or judging or analyzing. It's just to listen to understand. Like you listen to music or in a field, you listen to a cow or a baby crying or the sunset. It's it's not because you want to agree or disagree. It's just to understand what's going on. And if you can toggle to that kind of listening, you're achieving something really extraordinary. And so you need to understand that's what you're stepping in to do. And likewise, when it's your turn to talk, can I speak in a way that is really about what is alive and current right now for me, as opposed to what I think I'm supposed to say, what my story has always been, what I want to achieve by seducing you to do one thing or another, all of the um, agenda that I might bring to this moment. Can I set it aside and just speak what is alive and real right now for me? and be legit, be real, keep it true. Can I do that? Can I speak in that way? Can I be... And, and, and my answer is, I, I don't know. I know, exactly. Well, I mean, like, I mean, just when you say that right now, I'm like, in this podcast, am I being authentic? Exactly. Because like, so, like when, when I have... Uh, no, no lie, like we're, we're sitting in a room, like when I have these things, like what I'm trying to do is forget the microphones right. and just like talk to you like we're in a restaurant. Yeah. And like sometimes I pull that off yeah. And sometimes I catch myself steering the conversation like, because I want those viewers in radio land. And I go like, damn it, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah. Well, like, you know, I, I think your your listeners um, are, are satisfied that you do it enough. And it's an intention, dude. It's like, you know, this is a practice. And this I guess about it's the same us. in the circle, right? It's You're, the same like, thing. There's sometimes no, you pull it off and sometimes and you And there's don't. no council police that comes around and gives you a ticket <laughs> for being, you know, too agenda driven and authentic. So can't, the, the, the spontaneity of that moment is the thing you aspire to. That's why it's called an intention. Right. It's not a guideline. It's not a rule. There's no one coming around, you know, checking on you. There's no police. It's funny because like if you've ever been in rehab, wait, have you ever been in rehab? No, I have No. If you've ever been in like a rehab situation or like... um like I was in a group session once because I had a friend and we were we were in this group session at, at the rehab and uh, somebody said something and the person across the street goes like, that's bullshit. Yeah. Like, like y- y- I call you, I'm calling you on that. Sh-. And, and I thought like, that, like, that's my biggest fear is that yeah. I'll be talking in council and there is a council police person yeah. and they will, that doesn't happen though. In a, right. in a council, that wouldn't be cool. Exactly. So, you know, the facilitator, in this case, is the person who is really committed to the practice. If they are working for my organization, which is Center for Counsel, they are certified and they've gone through a process. So they are really living the practice. And that person is there to do those same things, to be listening from the heart and to be not there to uh, kind of be thinking, well, this should be going this way and it's not. I better intervene. Not to steer. Exactly. So the way it is- That would be hard for me, man. You never could train me. So I I don't know about that, Bart. I have a feeling there's something (laughs) potential I steer. I'm such a steerer. So if you understand the intention and you understand that, you know, facilis, the word facilitate is about making it easy, to make it easy. Right. It's not about directing. Right. This is not a director in council. There's a facilitator. And the facilitator is making it oh easy. Gosh, I've never thought about the word facile yes, means easy. Yeah. I have never. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. No, I mean, like, you know, you're <laughs> laughing at me, but like, I'm going like, that's actually really profound. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have always thought of, like, I swear to you, when I think facilitator, I yeah. think 
good steerer. Right. Oh my god. Well, gosh. it's not. That's not the uh, okay. at least the etymology. All right. But so we 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 are we are in this practice where the spontaneity and the you know talking and listening from the heart, the sense that you know because we have a limited amount of time, we are intending to just go to the essence to really speak leanly. You know what needs to be said, not. You know, the story is that the third that, thing? That's the fourth thing. So What's the third thing? Listening from the heart and speaking from the heart. There's being spontaneous, and there's being lean. And being spontaneous means not means something that, I planned out. Means that you know, if we, if there were you know eight other people in this room, um, the person after you is going to have a reflection that's going to change my whole worldview on what you just said, and then the person after them is going to change it again. And if I'm really with how this group is having a conversation, I'm going to be different by the time the talking piece gets to me than I was when I was rehearsing what I wanted to say, oh, yeah, not yeah, listening yeah. to them. Right. So like, it would be different if we said like. Okay, everybody tell like the most embarrassing thing that happened to you. Yeah. And like, I know what I'm going to say. And it doesn't matter what anyone says ahead of me. Right. I'm going to say that. Yeah. In a spontaneous thing, you're like, I'm going with what's Because you know what? Here. When you hear this guy saying his story, you're uh -huh. like, oh, I forgot about that. That reminded me of this other thing that didn't come to mind at first. But wow, I had one like that. And it just now dawned okay. on me. Okay. That's the thing that I've been really wanting. So to there's connections being again. made. So there's connections being in, made. In the spontaneous world. Exactly. Okay. So something is happening as we're practicing okay. in this way. Okay. You know, the, the uh, facilitator understands what uh, could prompt the conversation in a good way. And the, the, facilitator, fourth, the fourth one is like, I'm going to try to keep it to the essence. I'm yeah. not going to... Yeah. I'm not going to perform. Yeah. And and I will say that some of the um you know indigenous practices that are similar recognize speaking from the heart and listening from the heart and being spontaneous as being very akin to a lot of the things that are done in a lot of different traditions. Lean, keeping it short, not part of their way. And that's kind of like I don't know about this one. And I've been in, you know, teepee ceremonies that go on 17 hours. 17 hours, dude. They're like Time and like, mm -mm -mm -mm. this is about our world where we move quickly. We have, you know, 52 minutes for language arts. We have, you know, from 6.30 to 8.15 and then the count happens. Everyone has to get back in their cell. And, you know, the correctional officers are not interested in the fact that someone's got a great story. It's like time for this to end. And so in order to do this work in, in this world, world, in this world, we need to accommodate. So that's, you've brought that yes. to it. Like right. that's, that's the accommodation that's the of accommodation. reality. Yeah. And so speaking to essence becomes a really important thing to um, practice again in the context of the council circle. The, the, the final piece of this is that we have to have a way to end. Just as we begin, there needs to be a way that everybody understands that now we're going to step away from this way of being and these agreements and go back into the world. Because I know that you are intending, by looking in your eyes and being with you, to really listen to what I have to say. And this guy and that guy and this person and this person, they're all in the circle with me. But when we step out of council, you may not have that same generosity of spirit. <laughs> you may not, as we get outside, really want to be with me and, and really listen without judging. I had 45 minutes for you. You had 45 minutes and then you have some kind of snarky thing you want to say to me or you have some kind of, And that's totally fine. That's the way we work. Or, you know, like... I get a phone call and it's my mother. I'm going to say, oh, okay. 
Hi, mom. Hi, how are you? I'm going to judge that person before I let them permeate my world or somebody wanting to sell me something or somebody wanting to direct me. I'm going to need to make judgments about how I hear that person. That's how we live in the world. And that's okay. But in you counsel, got, but we you got shift. To, right. And you got to close it out so that like if you and I walk outside and we haven't agreed that we're going to change modes yeah, yeah. and then you're, you talk to me that way, I'm like, hey, dude, dude. I, thought we were, I thought we were good, man. Yeah, I, I thought we had something here. <laughs> and so it's like you need to let, like almost like it's almost like. Like, I, I, gosh, I can remember it like when you were dating some girl sort of on the sly, like, you know, you didn't want the rest of the group to know. You'd be like, we're this way. Now, okay, now we're walking back in the room exactly. and you drop hands yeah. and you'd be like, okay, now we're this yeah. way. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, you know, not that can, I ever did that, Marty. <laughs> um, we can joke about this, but I got to say, you know, again, and, and, and we should talk about this. Um, a lot of the places we do counsel, you got, you know, Crips and Bloods and Northern and Southern Mexican gangs and, you know, Aryan brother. You have people from affiliations on the prison yard where in a diverse council, they may find that they can see commonality, but it's actually dangerous to, to carry that back, back, in back the onto the yard. And it can lead to some really uh, difficult things. Now, I, I say that in an extreme case, but even if you're in a seventh grade class where teachers have been doing this for years and years, and there's tens of thousands of kids who have experienced counsel just in LAUSD alone, the teacher in telling the authentic story about, you know, having a pet when they grew up or, you know, having a, a brother or sister in which there's a story in that moment where the teacher is no longer um, carrying figure. the role yeah. of the authority figure who's at the front of the class. Um, it's a beautiful thing to humanize the relationship, but then when it's over and it's time to go back to the math lesson, you got to be able to shift. And it's no longer appropriate to call me, you know, Bob or Sally or whatever. This is now, you know, Mr. Jones, who's teaching the class and you listen because I'm teaching. And when I give you an assignment, it's not a chance for us to be in dialogue about that. It's me giving you an assignment. And so these roles don't go away. It's not a magic bubble. It doesn't all of a sudden create, you know, equality for, you know, forever and ever that that no one has any kind of uh, power dynamics when we leave this container. Yeah, or else maybe and, and you say, well, that's sad, but you go like. But maybe nobody could step into the circle yeah. if they knew that they had to live with this level of vulnerability or this level of evening out. Right. And so like it may be sad if it ends when – but I would never have gotten in if exactly. I – Exactly. Yeah. And so you ask, how do you make this safe? How do you have a conversation? Well, you, you don't listen to the authority figure telling you it's safe. And I'll tell you that I will never be in a council where I say, now, this is a safe space. Now you can share. That's okay. never – not, not going to hear that from me or anybody yeah, so that it, we have it's trained. Like, it's like every woman I know says, like, when a guy tells you I'm not like all the other guys, <laughs> like, run. Or, you know, like, or you're safe with me, right. run. And yeah. so, like, yeah. So you don't – that's not how you establish – so circles. just because we we really understand that the circle needs to earn that, it needs to understand that there's a value to holding this space in a good way. And when you look around the circle, you have to assess for yourself, you know, where can I go with this? What feels appropriate? Uh, I'm an adult with children. I'm not going to talk about certain things about my life that feel inappropriate. I'm sitting with people that I work with. I'm not going to go there. It's not a story that I feel is uh, going to forward anything. It's not going to serve this group for me to tell that story. It it's not. This is so. This is not like a. This is a bear your soul, spill your guts group. That's it's not necessarily it might happen, but that's not the right. point. So I, I don't know what I mean, you're you're saying it hypothetically. It might be that if that's the group that you've created, but you better be paying attention. And this is where mindfulness comes in. You look around the room and is that 
this group or is it not? I mean, be smart. You know, again, this is not some magical spell that's cast on people where, you know, all the rules go out the window. This is an opportunity to create community and to navigate your way to a different kind of way of being with each other that's more authentic. <laughs> okay. So like this is a total sidebar. Yeah. A few years ago, one of, one of my absolute favorite thinkers in the world is a guy named Alain de Baton. Okay. He, he, he did a TED, TED Talks, Atheism 2.0. He just gave probably the best podcast interview I've ever heard on a show called On Being, which is about love relationships. He's brilliant. Okay, mm -hmm. So I read his book, Religion for Atheists, chapter after chapter. I'm going like, this makes sense. I mean, he's a secular guy saying like, we can learn a lot from religious practices. Yeah. But then at the end of the book, there's this thing where he goes, you know, a lot of people are really sexually repressed. So perhaps what you should do in a community is there should be a weekend every year <laughs> where you relax all the rules and everybody could have sex with anybody oh, they boy. felt like and say whatever they want. And then you just put it back on. And mm -hmm. I remember reading that and going like, dude, you have no, like clearly you are mm -hmm. theorizing. You have no idea how an actual community works. You can't just relax all the mm -hmm. rules for a minute yeah. and then go like, and then like, we'll just go back. Yeah. Like, you, you know, so you're right. Like, even if you're in a safe circle, you still have to, you have to know where you are and you have to know, like, we're here now, but we're going to go back there. So I don't want to say anything here yeah. that I can't handle if I go back there. I, I will, I have to say to you, it changes you to take risks like this and to stretch. It changes you to be able to share something and find that it's not the end of the world. And there are a bunch of people who actually still respect you and still want to have a relationship with you, even though they've seen a side of you that maybe they haven't seen before. Maybe you're in a work context where there's a you know, part of your humanity, you're going through a divorce or you're going through a difficult time and telling a story in which you bring that part of you yeah. to a place where that stuff usually isn't talked about. It humanizes you and the relationship builds in empathy in a way that creates uh, a more um, kind of connected, um, compassion-based yeah, environment more humane that's environment. more humane. And in that environment, I think it increases the productivity, the functioning of a community. And a community can flourish and thrive when people bring their full self. Do you typically think of this as like a one-off? Or do you think like this? Uh, people do this on, a, on the regular basis with each other over a period of time? I, I get the impression when I see the prison stuff, mm -hmm. I get the impression that the same inmates are coming together on a regular basis over a period of time. Am I right about that? Or is it one off? It's a practice. And as a practice, um, you continue to grow in it and it continues to benefit you as you practice with other folks. Um, relationships, I know in my own personal life, you know, deepening a relationship with a loved one is an ongoing process. Right, and episodic. And if you continue to commit to have the intention to really go there on a regular basis, it gets better and better. Right. And I, the reason I ask that is because I go on this business of how much do you share? Yeah. And like, if I know that I'm like, I, I would sort of think that my tendency would be, I'll see how it goes the first time. Mm -hmm. And then maybe somebody pushes the boundary a little mm -hmm. and I see that it doesn't blow everything up. So then I'm willing to go that far. Like I, I can see that the depth would grow over time. Yeah, and I think that sometimes people have this expectation when they step into a circle, when they've heard about all this openness and, you know, oh, people got real. They think like mm. that you expect me to be real the first time out. Yeah. And I'm guessing most circles aren't, don't hit their peak realness or authenticity right out of the gate yeah. or am i wrong you know again i think it's really um it's specific to the moment sometimes someone will walk in and it's the conversation that they've been needing to have, have for a long time it's the thing they've been holding back that feels like it needs to be finally put their words need to be put to something um 
I think, uh, for me, I can only speak to my own process. And I know that I, uh, you know, I don't know what I don't know. And when I'm in council, I find more about myself in the sharing and in the listening than I knew before I went in. It's an ongoing process in places uh, bereft of this kind of connection, um, certainly in corrections. And I'd argue in many instances in the educational system, in the healthcare system, certainly the political system, one conversation where you're actually, where it's okay to be real and you actually see a side of somebody that you hadn't seen before can really change everything. And we go into hot spots where that conversation has not happened. And when it does, it's a game changer. And we realize this kind of thing is critical. This practice is a, is a critical thing. So Center for Counsel is really looking at places that need to be nourished, that are really longing for this kind of conversation to happen. And our sort of uh, mode of operating is really a train-the-trainer model. You need to teach a community how to have these kind of conversations in a good way, how to hold a container in a good way so that it can benefit that community. And when I say community, that's, you know, it might be a neighborhood, but it might be a staff, it might be a faculty, it might be a prison yard, in every, or it might be a family. And if you introduce these skills, it's, it, it becomes something that takes on an organic character, helping that community to thrive. It looks different every time. So when you spun out of Ojai yeah. and, and then created Center for Counsel, and it sounds like it started with educational institutions, mm -hmm. and then quickly you got started getting called into prisons, mm -hmm. juvenile mm -hmm. detention centers. Mm -hmm. Community-based organizations, uh, doctors, nurses. Staff meetings of groups of people. But yeah. wherever people were, either there was conflict or where people just weren't wanted to wanted to function better. Yeah. Why, 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 I said something wrong. Well, function better. This is the thing that's always there. You know, um, oh, sometimes the like, more expedient way of getting things done. This is will make just, us productive. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm being inauthentic, if I am, you know, the, the story you said at the beginning, if I'm selling my soul to get to be successful in a particular business or in an environment, um, I'm slowly killing myself. Mm -hmm. you know, I certainly felt bad. That was my experience. And so um, becoming more aware of, you know, how it is to be in this environment and what the issues are that are, you know, really impacting my ability to be in relationship with you and our community's ability to function, whether we're making widgets or we're trying to provide services or we're just trying to coexist peacefully, uh, we need to get really clear about the conversations that need to happen. And sometimes it's disruptive. It is uh, potentially a very disruptive technology to use counsel in a situation that has continued in a very dysfunctional way. Yeah, no, believe me, like I run, I work with a lot of post-religious people or people that are still in religious communities. And you yeah. go, yeah, if you started having circles yeah. in most churches where people talked about what they really thought and what they were really, what was really going on, it could be very disruptive to those religious communities. Bart, I got to tell you, I have a lot of experience working in systems, but with religious leaders, it has been an incredible journey. At least my experience, particularly charismatic Christian leaders who have come together because they see the value of this to have an opportunity to speak what is really going on and to listen beyond what you thought that person was going to say has led to situations where people have broken down and said, I finally have permission to be agnostic. Yeah. I have not been given the permission to not be behind this belief system. And now that I can actually be myself, I can find my way back into this in an authentic way.
And that's just mind blowing to see. Well, it's heart opening, I should say. It's it's incredible to see folks well, no, who no. step away from the belief system, from the ideology, to just be present and just be even real. for even for the moment that they're in that circle. And, and often they can't take that immediately back to their congregation. I was just going to say, like, that's where you have to go. Like, okay, now I'm get, stepping out of the yeah, circle. That's right. And I'm going to put back on my yeah. garb, and I'm going to go back to that. But but sometimes I, I I feel like I have a lot of conversations where people call me and they're like. You are my circle. Yeah. I will talk to you authentically about what's real. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as our conversation's over, they're like, okay, now I have to go back to pastoring that church. Or now yeah. I have to go back to this wife and kids or husband and kids. And they're like, I gotta put I gotta put my game face back on. Mm-hmm. And but I think that just the experience of of being authentic, even for a few moments and touching create, that builds a taste for that. And it's not, you know, Bart special medicine. This is about the uh, ability to touch, for example, your own sense of what it is to be Christian without the Christianity yeah. to what it is to be a good person without having to fulfill the role that you're expected to fulfill. And when you get that, when you get a taste of that, you understand what needs to be integrated in order to be an authentic yeah. human being. And I think it really informs your life and it may lead to some decisions to shift a bit. Here yeah. And, and it creates a sense of also you get a taste of, oh, there's life. Yeah. Like there's potent, like this authenticity thing kind of feels different yeah. and maybe even I like it. And maybe I like it. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it, it really is an amazing thing to experience. It's hard to talk about it and you need to come and sit down in one of these circles and see what it really is like. Cause it, 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 it is really am unexpected. I, am, I, am I, I'm displaying my ignorance, aren't I? No, I, I think you're, you're poking at it from the outside yeah. in, in a way that is completely understandable. You know, the, we have a website now that has some, uh, I think really good interviews. Oh, with folks. it does. I read, I, I looked at the video, the first video on that website and yeah. which is give, give it, give it out. Just I, like, well, it's centerforcouncil.org. Okay. That's pretty easy. And center for council. And, and one of the, you know, complications in the English language is that council is C-O-U-N-C-I-L, not S-E-L. And so a counseling session with a counselor is very different than sitting in a council circle. Yeah. And center for council is so it's like C- city council. It's like city like, council yeah. or neighborhood council. A council, you know, is, is a group of folks, each of whom have a voice and sit together. And so centerforcouncil.org has all of these um, sort of tidbits and windows portals into the experience. And when you have somebody and, and the whole story isn't there, but when you look at some of these videos, uh, you know, you're, you're watching a guy who was formerly a member of the Aryan Brotherhood who has enormous swastikas tattooed to his chest. Okay. Who says, you know, my best friend is this African-American guy sitting next to me. And when I first walked in here, I, I was unwilling to sit next to him and certainly not willing to listen to what he had to say. But somehow when I just said, I'm going to just allow myself to set aside everything I think I know and listen, I heard in his story, my story, he could be my brother. And over and over again, people who seem irreconcilable as adversaries. And, and, And that's a dramatic example, but it might just be somebody who you never thought you had anything to do with because you've, you know, you, you've created a bubble for yourself because you're, you're fed a worldview through the algorithms of your social media feed that just keep telling you the things that you want to hear and confirming your bias. And so so the position of people who are not like you is uh, made into a caricature. You don't understand it. You don't empathize with it. And so you reject it and you think of it as the other it's them over there. And when you sit in a certain in which you're not using your head, the executive function is, is, is not preferenced over just listening to someone's story to just hear where they're coming from. Something shifts and it's, it's a remarkable shift. I just read this book called Hillbilly Elegy. It's a beautiful book. Do you know this book? Very well. Yeah. yeah. And 
it's it's written by this guy who grew up in kind of Appalachian poverty in Ohio. Yeah, right, Pence. like right near where I used to live. Yeah, and um, but the funny thing is, there's one moment where I'm reading it and I'm going, because I, I spent all my time in inner city mm-hmm. with mostly black people, mm-hmm. and I'm reading him and I'm going like, this is this is, and he and then he says, you know, he said when I read the accounts of inner city poor people, he said, what strikes me is not how different we are. But how similar. Yeah. And there is this sense in which when people are authentic, um, there are some weird, really weird connections that people make where you go like, yeah, that's my story too. Yeah. Just different landscape. And and becoming aware of those blind spots, becoming aware of how we have reduced folks to, you know, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News that we listen to, we hear the caricature yeah. and we stop really hearing the humanity, that sort of innate human goodness in that person, the pe- people who have been bereft, people who feel that the things that we value are a direct threat to their way of life and who they are and their whole sense of identity. You know, there's something about an opportunity to hear their stories that really changes the way you view the world in a way that I think is um, a course correction that is critical. I mean, it's critical that we find a way back to see each other as profoundly interconnected right. and uh, allies in trying to make the world a better place. Because okay, on one so, level, we are that. Okay. So I'm sitting in Melbourne, Florida, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, I'm very far from the Ojai Institute. <laughs> I'm very, hard, very far from Los Angeles. And this sounds all good to me, yeah. but like, I don't have that training. So how do I make this happen in my world? Like, how do I create that zone? Like, do I go to your website? Is there like a book I read? Is there is like, I mean, I know that ideally you would come out and get the training and, and become like a certified cool guy. Um <laughs> And I don't mean that in a snotty way. Um, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I really don't. I really don't because I, I, I watched that video yeah. on your thing, and I thought, yeah, the way these, and it was mostly men because they were it was mm-hmm. the inmates that I was listening to. The way they talked about it, I thought, they, un, like they know the values, they know the practices very well. Like this is, this is not light for them Mm -hmm. this is this is real for them and they've they've and and i know that that doesn't happen like with somebody like reading it off the off a cue card like somebody Mm -hmm. has to really deeply know this in order to transfer it in a way that these guys would deeply know it so i don't mean that snarky what i do mean though is i'm this person in melbourne florida and i'm and i'm thinking like i wish i was part of a circle of authentic Mm -hmm. connection like that or i wish they did it at my workplace or I, I just wish, I, w- I just wish my family, I, I, like, I don't know how to have that kind of conversation. What would be your, what would you say to that person? I would thank them. You know, this is, this is a really important longing to name. It's a longing that I think will move us towards ways to find um, practices like counsel and it may not be called counsel, you know, right. as an organization, we, uh, center for counsel became independent a couple of years ago. And in uh, three years we have, you know, quadrupled in size. We're in 22 prisons. We go all over the States. You know, I've been to Rwanda five times to work with the Rwanda correctional service. I'm going to Bosnia next month. We're, um, able to find ways to get out to folks who are looking to, uh, learn from these practices and right. we are not unique. We are part of a moment where this longing for connection and for practices that engender a sense of 
community and connectedness through just sharing the stories without any belief system, without any pedagogy yeah, that yeah. you know that brings you a sense that this theology is the only way. No, to no, no. You, I mean, it's not a scripture-based kind of thing where you need to believe before you can actually step in. There's no qualifying. And it does not require that you self-pathologize. So unlike recovery movement, you don't join the circle because you're broken and you need it. You understand the critical um, uh, nourishment of this and you move towards it because you understand. You're human and you just yes. want it. Because you're human and you know that there's something missing from the dynamic in your family, with your partner, in your organization. So you find a way to be inspired. Now, the website is set up to share the stories and also to give a couple of access points. And the more you kind of... Uh, understand the benefits of this kind of listening, this kind of talking, this kind of coming together in a good way, the more you begin to move towards it yourself. There is the formal training in council, like their formal trainings and other kinds of circle practices. And you'd be surprised how easy it is to get to somebody or to have them come to us to spend a weekend just learning the basic skills of this. The only way it grows is if you practice it. And people who come to a council training who spend two days, you know, kind of learning the ins and outs of the sort of technique, yeah. have a lifetime ahead of them to be practicing this with their friends, with their colleagues, in their families. And after the most you know, brief kind of contact with it, find that things are shifting in ways that they had hoped they would. And it's not cause of us. It's because they've been affirmed. Because no, because, you know, people are always, they hear me talk about community building yeah. and they think like, I have to start a congregation or I have to start a big thing. And not everybody's gifted to do that. And not everybody needs that. Yeah. And what I always, what I would, you know, the analogy I use most often is I think our, our culture is like the Titanic. And it hasn't gone down yet, but like, it's all, it, there's some crisis here, like, mm -hmm. and, and, and there's not enough lifeboats. Like, I think a lot of people are being thrown into the water or they're feeling isolated and alone. And, and the, the old lifeboats, maybe like certain church things and things like that, they don't work for a lot of people the mm -hmm. way they used to. And we need new lifeboats. So like when Maggie comes in here to talk about her choir, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, she's building that's a way that people can connect. Yeah. And then when when my friend Mark Iaconelli came and he does these storytelling, like they're like the moth, except mm -hmm. they're much more sort of community-based. Mm -hmm. And you go like, yeah, that's a way that people can find that. And like, that's a lifeboat. And like yeah. the stuff I'm doing. And so when you come in here, I'm like, oh, that's another lifeboat building technology. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's an increasing number of people that are feeling that hunger of, can you show me a way to connect? Can yeah. you show me a way to create a place or a safe space for the people around me. Mm -hmm. And so what I hear you saying is like, thank you for being hungry for that. Yeah. Yeah. This is one way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's not as hard as I'm making it sound to get some, it's to get not, some training. It's not. It starts with leaning in. It starts from, you know, identifying that this is something that you want to that do. You need yeah. that your life depends on this. Your relationships do, you know, the, the, the quality of your family life, all of this sort of stuff really uh, requires that you step up. And these compassion based uh, techniques are critical. And also understanding the difference between empathy and compassion and burnout and empathy fatigue and all these things that wear us out when we try to do good in the world without some kind of practice um, require that we lean into this and we Jeez, find you know, it's just hitting me like i've been thinking of this as like people that are looking for the secular equivalent of a bible study group going mm -hmm. like well this would be a way to be together mm -hmm. but what i'm thinking of all, all of a sudden now is i'm going like oh crips and bloods oh like white and black oh 
believers and non-believers mm-hmm. in the same family who can't talk to each other. And I mean, I've got married couples like that mm-hmm. who can't talk about this part of their life. And you go like, oh, this might be a technology that would say like, we're not going to debate religion, right? but we are going to talk, but we're going to talk on this format. And maybe I can see the humanity of like, this feels like a very, this would be a really interesting way to kind of create space for inner religious dialogue, mm-hmm. which for a lot of people that leave Christianity, like that's my family. And how do I talk to them? Mm-hmm. Do you, can, have you seen it work in this I, way? I have this conversation all the time. And even in my staff, my uh, operations managers is, is dealing with the same thing that you're describing in ways. I think this is a really um, beautiful use of this work is to find those things that uh, remind us that we're, you know, we're human beings here. We're all, you know, grateful for something. We're all, you know, uh, feeling scared of something. We're all longing for something. And when those stories don't take on a uh, an ideology, uh, you know, a, a, a cosmology that requires that you must believe in order to hear my story, but are just simply the story, the spontaneous story, and that you're agreeing just to listen, to hear my voice, and to hear my authentic self. We've gone beyond all of those barriers that divide us because we believe different things. And again, like I know a lot of really very um, committed believers that they can't stay in that space like cuz mm-hmm. they are required to then my ultimate goal is to try to win you but they could go in that space for 45 minutes exactly. and that would be really a relief for them because they're like I want to talk to my kid again or my husband again as a person mm-hmm. and so the ability to sort of take off the armor go mm-hmm. into that space and go like don't worry you you'll be allowed to put back on your your armor again on the way out because they're like Part of my identity is I need to stay committed to your salvation, mm-hmm. but to create a space but, where but I identity can, I can is relax also that for a minute. A dad and a son. Yeah, identity is also beyond just the fact that we are That's filling right. roles for our community, our our, wow. our spiritual community. And when we can define a container that is about the story and is not about the belief system, when we really are speaking our authentic story, we find our way to that place because we are you know, uh, allies in, you know, people who are children of somebody, maybe parents of somebody, mm-hmm. certainly breathers of the air, you know, eaters of food. <laughs> we, we live in this country. We, we interact in ways that systems touch us, you know, regardless of our belief system. And it's critical that we shift to a place where we can recognize each other again as allies. What council does is it creates an invitation to be just that and nothing more. And it doesn't mean you're not a Christian and you're not a Buddhist, you're not a Muslim, you're not whatever you are when you come, you can still be that and you're everything else about what makes you a human being. So it doesn't exclude your belief system, but it actually shifts the focus to the story of your sort of common human experience. And in doing that, you recognize something that often we get distracted by, you know, we get distracted from in chasing ways to, uh, you know, fulfill an agenda to, uh, you know, achieve what we think we need to achieve in this fast-paced kind of mission-driven world. And I think that it's really important to slow down and to find ourselves again in community as, um, you know, uh, innately good human beings. All right. So like, this is me wanting to get back in touch with a story because when you start talking about Bosnia and Rwanda, I mean, to be honest in my heart, mm. I get worried about you again. And I go like, Oh crap. Like he was on this like big train and it crashed him. 
Mm. And now he found this wonderful thing he can do for people. And the world is coming and going like, come here, come here, do this, do this. And I'm just worried you're going to get all wound up <laughs> and, and, and so busy and crash again because you're so busy communitying everybody else that you're not around. Are you okay? Like, and like, we, we can cut this out of the podcast, but I'm just like, I appreciate that. And I'm, see, I'm, 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 this I'm, is I'm, why I'm, you need to come to my home and you need to feel what it feels like to be in my home. Cause you're and okay. To meet my beloved and to see what I do in my personal life that I only let my closest friends see. You got to take care of yourself. If self-care is not part of what you practice, you have no right to do this work. You cannot take people further than you're willing to go yourself. And if you're not practicing self-care, then you have no business asking people to take care of themselves or to build uh, healthy communities. It's a critical piece of this work. All right. And based on what you've just said, this is the last episode of this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. I resign. Um, no, 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 no. But like, I, you know, in all seriousness, I just go like, okay, you know, your thing has tripled in size. Yeah. It's doubled since the last time I talked to you. Yeah. And you just go like, I know enough about organizations to know that that they they can grow to a certain point, and then if they keep growing, there has to be a fundamental re, like reshaping it. Yeah. And it's like 150 people for a community, mm -hmm. and then then all the you know you know what I'm talking about that businessy kind of model yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. and I just go like, have you reached this critical mass where y you need more help or you're you need to restructure the organization, like, or has that already happened? Are you past that? Yeah. So I think we realized that we were hitting that ceiling when we were part of our previous affiliation right. in Ojai. And I think what we did was we found an organization called Community Partners, which is a fiscal sponsor. That's and, how I met you. Yeah, that's right. We They're wonderful people. Aren't They're amazing. They? And, you know, there's 35 folks in the back office taking care of all the logistics surrounding. They the, basically incubate yeah. or, 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 or yeah. house the, the back office for a lot of people exactly. doing this kind for of work. For a lot of organizations. And, you know, we have a pretty meteoric rise. We, we have been uh, pretty on fire in terms of our growth, I think, because this is a time where folks need these tools. Yeah, and yeah, let me yeah. tell you, dude, this is not about me. I mean, this is not me. I'm not I, this is a practice that this is, is not cult of personality. This happening. is not that at all. You know, I, um, not I'm, that you wouldn't be a fine cult leader. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I feel really lucky to be in the seat of being able to weave some of this. I think that more and more folks who get um, really uh, excited about carrying these tools into places that they feel, you know, could really benefit from this, have seen the benefit themselves and make themselves available. They sign up to get certified. And, you know, so there are 75 folks who are certified to do this. We work with about 35 of them in California. And there are folks on the track. I got a, a wonderful grant to train 30 uh, emerging community leaders who are folks who are the frontline staff of community-based organizations, mostly in their, you know, early, mid-20s, mostly not white, mostly, you know, really part of communities where they have really been touched by a lot of the suffering and have found ways to get energized in, in working with communities and feel like these tools are critical for the work they do. That's where our organization is growing in yeah. folks who get activated to feel like, wow, this is the missing piece. Now, because it's hugely, I mean, it's funny. It's hugely My, important. I learned about this. I, I mean, you, I want to sit in your circles, but mm -hmm. I have sat in circles in Haiti mm -hmm. with a bunch of people that do this kind of work, reflection circles with rest, former rest of X or with women who are the victims of sexual abuse. And what they find is that in an incredibly hierarchical society, yeah, this is like subversive and radical, this mm -hmm. circle, like the circle and the practice and, and, and the stuff. And I've watched it just, you know, and so what I think is in terms of, creating in people a sense of agency 
a sense mm-hmm. of like, I have some control. We as a people have control of our own destiny. We're not dependent on the man or right. the woman who is the expert who can make this happen. But rather, this is the once we get these tools together, like this is this is something we can do for ourselves. It's really powerful stuff. It's really powerful. And I have to say, Bart, it starts with your own capacity to be with suffering. You know, it is all around us, as we know. And how is it that I sit with it? How do is, you know, as, as Joan Halifax, who's a wonderful teacher, says, you know, how do we sit with a strong back and a soft front so that we can actually be with those things around that we need to be, they need to permeate. We need to listen to it. It needs to touch us, but we also need to not have it knock us down. Yeah. We need to find a uh, capacity to be robust, to be practicing self-care, and to show up in ways that you know meet the challenge and don't deplete us. So we need community, we need tools, we need practices, we need self-care. Yeah. And that's what we're building. And so I am really excited about having an organization that is... Um, you know, grown in its capacity and its, you know, core ability to support an enormous amount of work right now in a ton of different settings. And I see an incredible opportunity for this to increase in alliance with a lot of other organizations that are doing this. So we have another grant where we have 35 community-based organizations that we are funded to go train. And we spend six months with them working on coming together in this way, learning these tools, practicing together as a team, and then teaching them these skills to use in their communities. So each one of those groups of 35 organizations yeah. where 20 folks are learning this practice is bringing it to their communities. If you think of 22 prisons in California, and this is over the last two and a half years, we've grown to 22 prisons. And in each one of those, 20 inmates are learning to be facilitators. And we get about eight months with each group where we're teaching them these skills and we are supporting their coming together every week. And they're practicing. two hours and they practice and they practice and they self-facilitate and we come in and out and give them feedback and answer right. questions and work with them. And then they are now touching hundreds of people on each one of these prison yards. So there are thousands of people in the state of California who are incarcerated who are now working with these skills yeah. and it's shifting the culture on the prison yard and it's impacting those folks back home who are looking to these guys, mostly guys, but some women, and seeing that you know there is an opportunity to grow into the next chapter of your life that's not about those behaviors and perspectives that got you in there in the first place. Yes. That kind of uh, uh, opening to or maturing or... Um, shifting your orientation to something that is pro-social and that actually you know works to make the world a better place has an enormous impact well, not and just that, on the yards but back at home. That's what watching that video, watching yeah. these guys talk about it, I thought to myself, wow, like these people are talking about this is not the way we talk to my family. This is not yeah. the way we talked on the street. This is this new way of thinking and talking that's changing me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, like I, 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 the analogy I always use is I always say, like, if you have a cow and you want to feed a lot of people, give them milk, give them cheese, give them cream, but don't give them beef, you know, <laughs> like, cause then you, That's right. cause you know, you have, the reason you take care of yourself, yeah. cause you're the cow, right. the reason you take care of yourself is not as a way of withholding the love and the care that you want to give to That's other right. people, but it's a way of making it sustainable. sustainable. That's yeah. right. And for the pescatarians out there in radio land, um, you know, give me a fish and I'll eat for a day, teach me to fish and I'll eat for a lifetime. Yeah. So what we're doing here is training folks to use this technique to bring community together where they are. It's not about us. It's about learning these practices to create this thing that we all need that nourishes all of us. All right. I'm, I'm, we're done. <laughs> this was great. Thank you. Thanks this was beautiful. It. Thanks for it. All right, man. All right. All right. So that was it. 
That was my conversation with Jared Said. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved being with that guy. He is truly wonderful. And uh, he's doing such good work. If you want to find out more about Jared's work with prisoners, with all kinds of different people, making making the world better by helping people talk to each other, um, you can go to my website, barcampola.org. We'll have links there. Or you can go to centerforcouncil.org if you spell counsel right. Um, yeah. Well, I promised you that I would give you a little gem of Ingersoll. And that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to share a song with you. So here you go. Robert Ingersoll says, The truth is that no one can justly be held responsible for his thoughts. The brain thinks without asking our consent. We believe or we disbelieve without an effort of the will. Belief is a result. It is the effect of evidence upon the mind. The scales turn in spite of him who watches. There is no opportunity of being honest or dishonest in the formation of an opinion. The conclusion is entirely independent of desire. We must believe or we must doubt in spite of what we wish. That which must be has the right to be. We think in spite of ourselves. The brain thinks as the heart beats, as the eyes see, as the blood pursues its course in the old accustomed ways. That is some deep stuff, man. And it's a good thing to remember when you are listening to somebody who thinks differently than you. All right, now I promised you a song, and here it is. I am a huge fan of Carsey Blanton, and she has this song called Smoke Alarm, which I love so much, but I thought, like, ah, there's no way I'm allowed to play it on my podcast. So I went to her website. I found her email. I wrote her a letter, and she wrote back to me within 10 minutes and said, go for it. So here it is, Carsey Blanton, Smoke Alarm. If you don't love this... Now, maybe you're listening to the wrong podcast. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time?
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.